0: In the town of Kingman, Arizona, a local merchant had an unusual practice. He would let his donkey sleep in an old bathtub. It's unclear where the tub was located on the property, but in 1924, a local dam broke, causing a massive flood to run through the man's property. The donkey was sound asleep when the floodwaters washed the tub a mile down the valley. The tub ultimately landed in a basin, and though it wasn't injured, It did require a lot of manpower to free it from its bathroom bed. Shortly after this incident, the local town council convened to pass a law banning donkeys from sleeping in bathtubs. Or so the story goes. According to Tucson.com and numerous other sources, no such law exists, and the story has never been verified. There are a number of strange laws on Arizona's books. One law states that it is illegal for horses to climb stairs, and another makes it illegal to deny a person water. The United States is littered with laws like these. In Arkansas, they have an oddly specific law regarding car horns and sandwich shops. Allegedly, it's illegal to honk your car horn at a sandwich shop after 9 p.m. in the city of Little Rock. The Law, Section 18-54, Sounding of Horns at Sandwich Shops, states, No person shall sound the horn on a vehicle at any place where cold drinks or sandwiches are served after 9 p.m. In Hawaii, it is against the law to have more than one alcoholic beverage in front of you at one time. So much for double fisting. In Tennessee, it is a crime to share your Netflix password with someone. And in South Dakota, it is illegal to fall asleep in a cheese factory. During my father's time as village justice in my hometown, I would ask him about strange laws the town had from time to time. One day in the courtroom, he pulled out a small booklet of traffic offenses. There were two that immediately stood out. The first made dazzling lights on a car illegal. In particular, the lights underneath the body of the vehicle. The second made it illegal to display an improper funeral sign. These are lame by most standards, but I had a friend who was trying desperately to get out of a speeding ticket. We went to college together, and she had been running late for work one day. She swore up and down that she wasn't speeding, and attempted to dispute the ticket in court. The officer never showed up that night, but my dad was always a fair sport. He reduced her ticket down to a dazzling lights charge. In 1969, Scamania County became the first to pass legislation protecting Bigfoot in the United States. Located in the southwest region of Washington State, Skamania County is home to just 11,000 residents. Skamania County is the epitome of natural wonder. Its southern border begins where the Columbia River ends. The Cascade Mountain chain, which stretches from northern California all the way to British Columbia, runs through Skamania County and it is in the county that you can find one of the most infamous volcanoes on the west coast, Mount St. Helens. At 8.32 a.m. on Sunday, May 8, 1980, the volcano erupted, killing 57 people. Many have declared the eruption of Mount St. Helens to be the most devastating in U.S. history. The most attractive feature, at least to a potential hairy, bipedal, ape-like humanoid, is the amount of untouched forested land the county boasts. Approximately 80% of the land is declared national forested land, making it the perfect hiding place for Bigfoot. In early 1969, several residents reported seeing the hairy humanoids all around the county. It didn't take long for the three-member town council to take action, and on April Fool's Day 1969, Ordinance number 69-01 was passed. Quote, "There is evidence to indicate the possible existence in Skamania County of a nocturnal primate mammal variously described as an ape-like creature or subspecies of Homo sapien. End quote. The law deemed the willful slaying of such a creature worthy of a $10,000 fine and a prison sentence of up to 5 years. In 1984, the law was amended the council stated that it may have exceeded its authority, but acknowledged the area as a Bigfoot preserve. The slaying of a creature fitting Bigfoot's description was reduced to a misdemeanor, but a curious provision was added to the 1984 law. Quote, Should the Scamania County Coroner determine any victim creature to have been humanoid, the prosecuting attorney shall pursue the case under existing laws pertaining to homicide. Should the coroner determine the victim to have been an anthropoid, ape-like creature, the prosecuting attorney shall proceed under the terms of this ordinance. In short, this ordinance basically tries to declare if Bigfoot's real or not. Bigfoot is not the only anomalous phenomenon to be subjected to the law. In France, a small town was so concerned about the wave of UFO sightings that were happening that it passed a unique law which still stands on the books today. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is the Our Strange Skies Podcast. In the fall of 1973, the eastern United States was subjected to one of the strangest flaps ever recorded. Numerous eyewitnesses came forward, claiming to see strange humanoids. They all varied in size and appearance, but the majority of them were short creatures, and a great many of them were seen in the vicinity of UFOs, standing nearby, or conducting some kind of tests in the area, or perhaps performing repairs around the craft itself. Some of these humanoids were said to have abducted eyewitnesses as well, the most famous being the abduction of Charles Exxon and Calvin Parker, two shipyard workers who were fishing late one night. The sighting received national attention and was investigated by J. Allen Hynek and Dr. James Harder. The case became so infamous that it drowned out the rest of the UFO and humanoid reports that continued all the way up to December of 1973. Heineck infamously walked into the doors of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and demanded that the Air Force look into the strange flap. They refused, and Heineck left their offices dejected. A couple of years later, researcher David Webb compiled the sightings into a report titled 1973, The Year of the Humanoids. Twenty years earlier, France experienced a similar wave of activity within their borders. Many European countries began to experience a wave of UFO activity in early September, 1954. It began so innocently, with a UFO sighting from a car. A couple in France was driving at night, when they noticed a luminous disk, reddish in color, hovering approximately a thousand feet in the air. The object quickly shot up and disappeared from their view. While there were a number of sightings like this, it was the stranger reports that received the media coverage. And one of the most baffling came three days later, on September 10th. At 10.30 p.m., Marius Wilde, a railway guardian, was reading by lamplight. His wife and 10-year-old child were asleep and his dog began to whine and crawl on its belly. Marius could discern footsteps leading away from his house, and the dog responded with a bark. Marius grabbed his flashlight and rushed outside to investigate. He shone the light toward his fence, and just beyond the pickets, he could make out two small figures. They were clad in some kind of metallic suit. The helmets they wore gave Marius the impression that they had big heads. Their most curious feature, though, was what they lacked. The creatures had no discernible arms of any kind. Marius rushed after the creatures. He didn't know what he would do when he caught up with them, but he ran in a desperate sprint. His light followed the creatures, and soon the beam caught sight of a large object sitting on the rail tracks. The short beings bounded for it as quickly as they could. Marius closed the gap between them to five feet, and when he did, the object emitted a bright orange light. Marius threw his hands over his eyes to block the brightness. His legs wouldn't carry him any further. He felt paralyzed. The creatures continued bounding toward the object, walking through a doorway that closed behind them. The object rose up, hovered for just a moment, before speeding away toward the east. Marius regained the use of his legs moments after the craft departed. In his excited state, he woke his family, and rode to town to tell the story to the Quarovil Police Department. They did not believe him, but Marius was persistent, ultimately appealing to the police commissioner. The Quarovil Police dispatched a few officers, and notified the Air Police of Paris which also came out to the De Wilde residence to investigate the strange landing. Investigators discovered five deep impressions in three of the wooden railroad ties. Engineers later determined that it would have taken an object of considerable size, 30 tons, to make the impressions in the wood. Marius De Wilde's encounter would go on to echo many of those seen around France in 1954. In fact, it's startling how homogenous these encounters became. Numerous accounts of short humanoids wearing diving suits were reported, moving near strange objects no bigger than 10 or 20 feet wide. Most of them had red lights, and most were observed landing at one point or another. The strangest feature, though, was the paralysis, which seemed to be induced by the craft itself many would go on to report similar effects produced by the strange craft they encountered or the strange humanoid beings that they had come upon. UFO activity spilled out into other countries during this time, too. Britain, Germany, Italy, the Middle East, and North Africa all had reports of strange UFOs in their airspace. In Italy, 10,000 spectators of a soccer match at Stadio Artemi Franchi all looked up to see a UFO hovering over the concrete bowl. The Fiorentina Club was playing against Pistoise on October 27th. It was halftime when the object was sighted over the stadium. Quote, I remember everything from A to Z, said Ardico Magnini. It was something that looked like an egg that was moving slowly, slowly, slowly. Everyone was looking up. And also there was some glitter coming down from the sky. Silver glitter. End quote. Another conflicting account claimed that the object looked more like a Cuban cigar. Residents of Florence found a strange substance on their roofs. The same day the UFO had flown over the stadium. It had the same consistency of cotton wool and would disintegrate upon being handled. Four days after Marius Wild sighting, an object was sighted during the day, 250 miles south of Paris. On the 19th, in Oberdorf, a bright light was seen landing in a nearby field. An eyewitness reported that the light faded away once it had touched down. He was able to discern it was the size of a small bus, roughly cigar-shaped. A figure the size of an average man was seen in front of the object. It lifted off a short while later and sped away. On the 23rd at 9 a.m., the patient family was driving in Le when an object giving off a bright red light shone a beam in a field adjacent to the car. The family was terrified and drove as fast as they could. The object then set its sights on the small car and pursued the family until they had crossed the town line. For the next hour the object was observed by many eyewitnesses hovering around the town a day later two female eyewitnesses widow jeffrey and giselle fien saw a dark gray disc land in a clearing in bikar around 9 a.m a normal sized man wearing dark clothes and a cap stood by the disc miss fien was able to approach the craft and from sixty feet away, she could see that the man was performing repairs on the downed disk. Investigators later found traces in the grass where the craft had touched down. Perhaps the most dramatic case during this period came from the commune of Chabul in southeastern France. Mr. and Mrs. LeBeau had gone to visit Mr. LeBeau's grandfather. The couple brought along their dog, Dolly late in the afternoon, Mrs. Lebeau decided to pick mushrooms near a local cemetery, not far from the grandfather's property. Dolly began to bark endlessly, standing at the edge of a wheat field. Mrs. Lebeau presumed the dog was barking at the scarecrow, but upon closer inspection, that scarecrow was in fact a short humanoid wearing a diving suit. The figure was approximately three feet tall, and his clothing and helmet were translucent. Mrs. LeBeau would describe the being as, quote, a child in a plastic bag, with eyes larger than a human's eyes. The creature only stood there and stared at her for a period of time, before the suit slowly began to move toward her. Curiosity soon replaced by sheer terror, Mrs. LeBeau screamed and turned on her heels, taking cover in a nearby thicket. Dolly continued to howl, and soon the dogs in the surrounding area joined in. At approximately 4:30 p.m., a big metallic object rose up from behind a copse of trees and moved out over the wheat field, flying low and level. The craft made a whistling sound as it moved away from the area. Mr. Lebeau and many of the townspeople ran to the screaming woman. Many had heard the whistling sound made by the craft as it departed. Behind the trees, they found a large circle, approximately ten feet in diameter where the craft had come down. It had crushed some of the bushes, and many of the branches, which were three inches thick, were cut off of the trees. Some of the branches were devoid of leaves entirely, as if they had been burned off. Mrs. Lebeau suffered from shock and a nervous breakdown. She laid up in bed for two days to recover. The dog, Dolly, still trembling when they came upon her, trembled for three full days before she eventually calmed down. The details of this case frightened a great number of people in France. The terrifying nature of the creature and the nervous breakdown of Mrs. Lebeau all contributed to a growing fear of France's UFOs. According to researcher Amy Michelle, the object Mrs. LeBeau had encountered was seen by two eyewitnesses 65 miles to the south at approximately 5.12 p.m. Many of the objects appeared to be traceable, showing up in nearby towns consistent with their rate of speed. On September 28th, Mr. Mercier, was at home when he noticed that some of the grapes from his bushes had been plucked. He decided to forego sleep to catch the culprit in the act at ten thirty p m Mercier noticed a luminous mass falling from the sky. He was paralyzed at the sight of the light and remained conscious enough to witness three figures emerge from the light. He awoke a short time later alone in his yard having blacked out at the sight of the strange beings. In marseille Servienne, on September 30th, Georges Guitté and a crew of seven construction workers saw a landed disk near their construction site. A humanoid being stood by the craft, and both the craft and man disappeared before their eyes. All the crewmen started to experience strange health effects, after both the craft and being disappeared. By the end of September, over 250 eyewitnesses had reported seeing UFOs or humanoids in France. Sightings increased day by day, and would only get stranger from there. France had no Project Blue Book of its own, making the workload for independent investigators unbearable. Scarcely had the researchers begun to investigate one group of observations, said Amy Michel, when a torrent of others would drop on them, literally from the sky, just as interesting and just as troublesome. The French Air Force had a scientific group of their own that could have investigated the sightings, but chose not to. Later, they would release a report attributing many of the sightings to misidentifications of known aircraft or natural phenomena. However, the report was skewed, given that the French Air Force purposely left out the sightings of landed craft and humanoids. Many skeptics attributed the increased sightings of October to mass hysteria. Even Donald Kehoe, the former marine pilot and UFO researcher, chalked many of the October sightings up to a public panic. On October 1st, a replay of the Marista Wild incident would play out in the town of Bree. A man walking his dog noticed a bright light falling from high above in his direction. Both man and dog were unable to move, though their condition swiftly passed as the craft banked up and out of view. On October 3rd, a stockyard worker named Angelo Gerardo was riding his bicycle to work in the early morning. Rounding a bend, he witnessed a disc-shaped craft resting on the side of the road and a short figure wearing a diving suit standing next to it. The being started to approach Gerardo, but he wisely pedaled away. He kept his eye on the creature as long as he could, his feet pedaling at tremendous speed. The craft shot away ahead of Angelo as he pedaled into the distance. UFO researcher Amy Michel would write a book about the 1954 French UFO flap called Flying Saucers and the Straight Line Mystery. Michelle was able to discern a pattern in many of the UFO's sightings. Some of the unknown craft would fly in a straight line pattern through certain regions of France. One pattern he was able to pick out terminated with Angelo Gerardo's sighting, the first having occurred nearly 12 hours earlier in the town of Bergerac. A disc had landed in the garden of Jean Le Boon late in the afternoon and was observed by more than one person. The craft moved north to Rossinac, where 23-year-old motorist Jean Alleray saw a circular object within the headlights of his vehicle. It didn't glow, but gave off what he called golden nails of light. Similar sightings of the craft and a humanoid were reported along the northwesterly path the object took toward Gerardo and the place he had seen the object. Marius de Wilde himself had a second encounter on October 10th, this time with his son by his side. They observed a large craft, approximately 20 feet wide, land in a nearby field. Seven short figures emerged from the craft and began moving around the object before it vanished. The traces left by this object were far greater than the first. This time, it left a 10-foot diameter flattened patch of grass. Sites' sightings dropped off around October 12th, before the UFO activity moved to South America. Brazil, Venezuela, and Argentina all received reports of UFOs and straight short humanoids that would make guttural sounds. In late October, a formation of UFOs were seen flying over Parto Alegre Air Force Base in Brazil for nearly five hours. The focus then shifted back to Europe in December where the flap eventually died down. Marius de Wilde's first encounter may have had the strangest effect on France. Days after the French railway guardian's encounter happened, a small blurb appeared in the New York Times concerning the Marius de
1: Wilde humanoid sighting. Paris, a spate of reports of extraterrestrial visitors to France, coming from regions where the wine is more noted for its strength than its vintage, spread yesterday, September 14th, with the speed of a space cadet. Marius de Wilde, a metal worker who lives at Carrouble, department of the Nord, made known yesterday that he had seen what seemed to be two Martian visitors at his garden gate last Friday night. They alighted from a cigar-like machine which came to rest on the railway just outside his domicile. Monsieur de Wilde described the visitors as of small stature, clad in something resembling a deep-sea diver's costume. They had the appearance of human beings, Monsieur de Wilde continued. But when he approached them, the machine in which they had arrived set forth with a green beam of light, which paralyzed him. When he recovered his sensibilities, the cigar was taking off, and the two beings had disappeared. The authorities have since noted unusual marks on the cross ties of the railway, as though they had been made by the tail skid of some flying machine.
0: One town in southern France took notice. Chateauneuf-du-Pape is small by most standards, boasting a population of only 2,200 people. Its name translates to the Pope's new castle. In 1308, Pope Clement V moved the Vatican from Rome to France due to his immense love of wine. The area quickly earned a reputation for making some of the best wine in France. The papacy would remain in France for only 67 years, moving back to Rome after Clement V's death. The town's legacy for winemaking has largely remained intact for over 800 years. In April of 1955, Mayor Lucien Gium and the town council took notice and passed a special law prohibiting cigar volants, or flying cigars, from doing laps over Chateauneuf-du-Pape. Article 1. The overflight, the landing, and the takeoff of aircraft known as flying saucers or flying cigars, whatever their nationality is, are prohibited on the territory of the community. Article 2. Any aircraft known as flying saucer or flying cigar which should land on the territory of the community will be immediately held in custody. Article 3. The forest officer and the city policeman are in charge, each one in what relates to him, of the execution of this decree. According to Lucien's son, Eli, the law was passed as a publicity stunt to generate tourism in the tiny village. The French UFO law has never been repealed, and there are no plans to, according to Mayor France Bleu. Quote, It spices things up a bit. It creates a kind of harmless buzz, and no one is getting harmed. Despite the novelty of a law designed to generate tourism, it seems to have accomplished part of its goal, No UFO has ever been reported flying over the skies of Chateauneuf-du-Pape. This episode was written and recorded by me. A special thank you to Scott and Forrest from Astonishing Legends for lending their vocal talents to this episode. They have a great podcast, and if you haven't checked it out already, you really should. And if you haven't checked it out already, I assume you live under a rock, out in space, or you just hate great podcasts. I don't know. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you can't, you can subscribe to the show on Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as any of your favorite podcast app. If you care to drop us a line, you can email the show at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Another way you can support the show is by becoming a patron. Patrons get access to exclusive bonus episodes, which includes interviews and all future meltdowns. If you'd like some merch, like a t-shirt or a mug, visit our TeePublic store in the show notes for more information. The show's theme is by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo was designed by Tessa Brown. Thank you so much for listening.